Hallelujah, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. So a uh, prominent and well-respected New Testament scholar said something, and it really struck me as I was studying for this sermon, um, something about the early days of Christianity. And this is the quote. Quote, Christianity was born into a world where its central claim was known to be false. Nobody believed in the resurrection. There's a, there's a belief that I think a lot of people have, just kind of generally loosely held, that ancient people could much more easily buy the claim that Jesus Christ rose from the dead than we can. That they were superstitious or they had room in their, in their thinking for something like Jesus' resurrection, and maybe that's why Christianity took root and took off. But that's just not factually true. It's not that they didn't want something like the resurrection. They wanted their dead loved ones just as much as we want our dead loved ones. But just like us, ancient people knew that that's not how things go. That wanting and getting are not the same thing. Our dead stayed dead, and their dead stayed dead, and they knew that. And the ancient writers will routinely talk about the finality of death. In the Iliad, which I've heard described one time as kind of like the foundation of all Greek literature, Achilles says to Priam at one point, when Priam is mourning the death of his son, Achilles says, you must endure and not be brokenhearted. Lamenting for your son will do no good at all. You will be dead yourself before you bring him back to life. Aeschylus, the playwright, wrote in a play called Eumenides. He, he's imagining um, Apollo being at the Areopagus, and the Areopagus is being founded. The Areopagus is where the philosophers met in Athens. And Apollo is there, and this is what Apollo says. This is the Greek god Apollo. Once a man has died, and the dust has soaked up his blood, there is no resurrection. And what's interesting is you can find similar things in most of the major Greek writers. Sophocles says something similar in Electra. Euripides says something similar in Helen. Aristotle in On the Soul says something very similar, and it's not just the Greeks. The greatest Persian king is Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, right? His son Cambyses heard about a, uh, a plot to overthrow him. And it was, uh, it, was, it was a plot that was based and led by his brother Smyrtus. So Cambyses does what any good Persian monarch tyrant does. He sends assassins out to kill Smyrtus. And they do. The problem is, um, that wasn't the Smyrtus that was leading the, the plot. It was a different one. And so Cambyses kept hearing the, the rumors about Smyrnus still leading the plot. And so he called the assassins in and he says to the assassins, did you, did you kill Smyrnus? And they reply, and I believe this is in Herodotus. I forgot to write it down. They reply, look, I killed him and I buried him with my own hands. You have nothing to worry about unless dead men are resurrected. Which the, the, is to say the assassins say to Cambyses, chill out. Because the Greeks, the Persians, the Romans, 
all people know that the dead are not resurrected. You don't have to worry about it. And that's the world that Christianity is born into. If you remember from when we preached all the way through Acts, Paul himself goes to that Areopagus, the place where Apollo is founding in the play, and he, he begins preaching and teaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And at first, the, the Greeks are really interested in it. They love hearing about new gods, and they think resurrection is the name of a new god, maybe. But when Paul explains what he means by resurrection, that Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus is risen, they mercilessly mock him. Because nobody rises from the dead. And yet Christians won't shut up about it. It's true that Jesus' resurrection is the central claim of Christianity. And Paul said that if anyone could ever produce the bones of Jesus and thus disprove the resurrection, there would just be no Christianity left. 1 Corinthians 15, 14 says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. If, on the other hand, if Jesus did rise from the dead, then all of Jesus' claims have to be reevaluated in light of that fact, including and especially his claim that he is God, including and especially his claim that he was sent to die for our sin, including and especially his claim that he will eventually raise all people from the dead, which leaves us with a very, very important question then. Did Jesus rise from the dead? And what's interesting is if you, if you study this, there's only a few logical possibilities to account for the fact of his disciples saying that he did and then what happens over the next 2,000 years. In fact, barring um, way out there theories, like, for instance, barring a theory, with, with the exclusion of a theory like Jesus was a Martian, which nobody believes, right? Or, or something like the, there was no such person as Jesus, which even secular historians can see that there was a man named Jesus who was executed by the Romans. Barring way out there theories, if you boil it down, you can, there are basically like five possibilities. I want to go through these today what happened five possibilities first maybe Jesus didn't die maybe that explains the resurrection appearances second maybe the disciples were just hallucinating third maybe they did it on purpose made it up maybe there was a conspiracy fourth the resurrection maybe wasn't in the original story and it got kind of added in later and if it's not any of these four, if we, if we find that none of these four stand up to the facts, then it has to be the fifth one. That Jesus actually is risen from the dead. So let's do this. Let's start with the first one. Maybe Jesus didn't die in the first place. Um, and here's what we know, okay? We know historically that the Romans were the ones doing the crucifixion. It's pretty well historically attested that his body was taken off the cross and was placed into a tomb. Um, 
John A.T. Robinson, who was, a, who was a, a Cambridge professor, said that the, the honorable burial of Jesus is one of the earliest and best attested facts that we have about the historical man, Jesus. But what if, what if Jesus was nailed to the cross, but then just passed out? What if he was nailed to the cross, he passed out, and the Roman soldiers overseeing the crucifixion didn't realize that he wasn't dead? And his followers who buried him, Joseph of Arimathea and uh, Nicodemus, they also thought he was dead when they buried him, but maybe he wasn't. Is it possible that maybe once they got him into the cool, damp air of that tomb, maybe he, he came too? Somehow it revived him? And the answer is not, not really. It's not really possible. No scholars think this is plausible because of a very couple of particular reasons. First, you have to remember that when people were crucified, not everybody was flogged, but Jesus was. And I'm not going to go into detail about this because it's just too gruesome even for me. But many of the people that the Romans flogged like that died of the flogging before they even got onto the crosses. And then crucifixion itself, even without the flogging, yes, it's true that crucifixion takes a long time to kill somebody, but it was incredibly, an incredibly effective way of executing somebody. Nobody survived crucifixion. The uh, Jewish historian Josephus, who's writing like 40 years after Jesus' death, um, he, he told a story about this. And, and I've, I've quoted this story before, but it's worth quoting again. This is Josephus writing. He said, when I was sent by Titus Caesar with Carilius and a thousand horsemen to a certain village called Thacoa, in order to know whether it was a place fit for the Romans to camp, as I came back, I saw many captives crucified. And... I remembered three of them as my former friends. I was very sorry at this in my mind, and I went with tears in my eyes to Titus, and I told him of them, so he immediately commanded that they be taken down and to have the greatest care taken of them in order in, with a goal towards their recovery. Yet two of them died even while the physician was working on them, and only the third recovered. In other words... Even though Josephus' friends were taken off the crosses and given the best medical care that Titus, the, the Roman emperor's son, had at his disposal, still two of the three guys died. Plus, these Roman soldiers had every incentive to make sure that people were actually dead. Famously, if you botched an execution as a Roman soldier, you took the person's place. You were executed. Which is likely why we find, when we read the crucifixion accounts, the centurion himself overseeing the execution, because he is responsible. And when they went to take the body down, he wanted to make sure that the body of Jesus was dead, so he had a spear thrust up into him to make sure he was dead. And then John, who claims to be an eyewitness, sees something. And you have to remember, John is not a doctor. John is a fisherman by trade. So when John says that they stuck the spear up in and water and blood flowed out of Jesus' side after he was dead, 
it is very unlikely that he knew that that's exactly what you would expect to see when somebody had died of asphyxiation. Because Jesus had died of slow asphyxiation and heart failure, which resulted in a collection of fluid in the membrane around his heart that's called pericardial effusion. If you are a nurse or a doctor and I have said something wrong, tell me later. <laughs> and then he was taken down by Roman soldiers. And his body was given to Joseph, uh, to Joseph of Arimathea and to Nicodemus. And so you have to imagine, if you're imagining this, these, these Roman soldiers who, who don't care too much about the fact they just executed him, getting him off the cross, which I'm sure was not terribly gentle, and then giving him to his friends, Joseph and Nicodemus. And these guys then carry the body to the tomb and they extensively handle the body. They take a bunch of linen wraps and they wrap and wrap and wrap this dead body with 70 pounds of spices. And um, you can ask somebody who deals with dead bodies a lot. Uh, Janet Champion isn't here, so I'm going to volunteer, volunteer her. She's, uh, she works in police forensic labs. I don't think that that kind of handling of a dead body, you really confuse whether or not it's dead or not. I don't think you don't notice that it's still alive. And nobody thought that he was still alive. But even if everybody's wrong, like even if everybody, even if Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and the Roman soldiers are wrong, you would still need him to then revive in this tomb, roll away a stone that several women do not think they can roll away, and then overpower some unknown number of Roman soldiers who are just outside. This, from a man who had just lost a ton of blood, been flogged, been nailed to a cross, dehydrated, and passed out, there is no way he could have done that on his own. Plus, it's not how the Twelve describe him. They don't describe him as mangled and broken and a recovering wreck. They don't find the risen Jesus, the risen Jesus, and carry him home and have to catch him every couple of steps when he stumbles because he's so weak. In fact, they describe him as exactly the opposite. What they encounter is something so alive that they worship him as the Lord of life who had clearly defeated, not just survived, but defeated death and the grave. All this to say it is absolutely reasonable to assume that Jesus actually did die. Because no one survived flogging and crucifixion. But just because we can establish that Jesus did die so we can get rid of kind of him fainting, that doesn't mean that we've established that he rose. Because there's another possibility. What if the disciples, in their immense grief at the death of their friend and, and their rabbi and their teacher that they'd spent three years with, what if they saw what they wanted to see? Maybe they had some sort of a, a waking dream or a, a hallucination where they thought that Jesus walked into rooms that they were in. Well, there's a couple of big problems with this, too. One of the big problems is that hallucinations almost always come from just a handful of known causes. Drugs, psychosis, 
and severe bodily deprivation like sleep deprivation or starvation. That's what causes hallucinations. And I'm willing to bet that if you know, if you're in this room and you've known somebody that's had a hallucination, it's from one of those three things and not something else. But even if, like, let's just say, maybe the disciples were on magic mushrooms. Let's imagine that, okay? There's a bigger problem with the hallucination hypothesis. Hallucinations are highly subjective, individualistic experiences. No two people have the same hallucination. It doesn't happen because shared hallucinations don't exist. And it's not just two people who saw the resurrected Jesus. Yes, it starts with Mary Magdalene, but then just later that evening, two men are along, walking along the road to Emmaus and talk with him. And then later that night, 10 people all at once he shows up to. And then a week later, 11 people. And then according to Paul, and this is going to be important for us going forward. According to Paul, the numbers just keep adding up who sees him all at once. So this is 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 5. He appeared to Cephas, that means Peter, and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and then he appeared to Paul. And the idea that 500 people all hallucinated the same thing at the same time. Paul, and, and Paul is willing to say, look, you can just go talk to them. Go find them. They're still around these people that saw that. That idea is as hard to believe as the claim that God raised Jesus from the dead because it, it doesn't happen. But there's an even bigger problem with this hallucination theory. And it's the, the obvious one. The Jewish leaders hated Christianity. Spent the next 40 years trying to stamp it out. And that's not in the Bible. That's just in the Bible. That's in the histories. We know that from Josephus. And if Jesus is not risen and the 12 are just hallucinating these, these experiences with him, then the Jewish leaders do something super simple. What is it? They just go get the body out of the tomb. And they say, you're crazy. We have a body. He's dead but they didn't. Why? Because they couldn't. Why couldn't they? Because one of the things that we know historically is that the body was gone. The body went missing. So if it's not that he fainted and it's not a hallucination, well, then there's a third possibility. And this is actually the earliest counter-Christian claim by the Jewish authorities. And the possibility is that some group of people, most likely the disciples, the 12, stole the body and then lied. And they said that they had seen the risen Jesus, risen from the dead. But there's just kind of a real big problem with this. Here's what we know about the disciples after the crucifixion. They were a hot mess. They were totally demoralized. I don't know if you remember the conversation between the, uh, the two disciples who were walking on the road to Emmaus when Jesus appears to them. What they say is one of the most depressing things in the entire New Testament. They're like, well, we had kind of hoped that he was the one that we'd all been waiting for for a thousand years, but now he's dead. 
And the most important members of Jesus' entourage are literally hiding out of fear that they are next. And we're not surprised to find them hiding because it matches everything we know about them. When the soldiers come to arrest Jesus and it becomes obvious that this confrontation does not end well for him, that he's going to end up arrested, they literally run away. Mark is so terrified that as he goes to run away, one of the Roman soldiers grabs hold of his shirt or his, his, his cloak and he takes off running without it and he's buck naked underneath. And yet it's true that John and Paul turn back and then follow Jesus to the trial. But I mean, just think about that situation. Peter's in the courtyard as the trial's going on and literally a little girl comes up to him and is like, hey, didn't, aren't, weren't you with Jesus? And Peter freaks out. No, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know who you're talking about. I have no idea. I'm just here warming myself by the fire. I don't know anything about this. And that happens not once, not twice, but three times. And then he runs again. And yeah, he's absolutely heartbroken, yes. And he weeps, but you know what he doesn't do? anything to help Jesus. He goes home. And then a few days later, these same guys that ran away, one naked, one after like literally just lying and betraying, these same guys are exuberantly telling everyone in Jerusalem that Jesus rose from the dead, even when the Sanhedrin, the very same group of people that got Jesus crucified, tell them to stop. They won't stop saying he is risen. Start to beat them. They won't stop saying that he is risen. Start to kill them, and they still won't stop saying that he is risen from the dead. Why? Well, this theory claims that these guys hatched a conspiracy to say that he rose from the dead, but it's just not likely because there's a famous saying that Cicero has. Cicero says, and my Latin's no good, qui bono? You should always ask the question, what's the gain? You should always follow the money, says Cicero. And the problem with the idea that they came up with this lie is that nobody got anything out of it. Christianity is a religion of slaves and widows. Nobody got anything. Nobody made any money for like 200 years. Nobody made any money off of this. Plus, they were utterly reviled by first the Jews and then the Romans. They were jailed, they were excommunicated from their synagogues, and some of them were killed. Also, it, conspiracies don't work like this. It is extremely improbable that that number of co-conspirators, the, the number that we're talking about, would be uniformly able to keep the conspiracy going for 40 years. You're telling me that not a single one of them broke, either under the strain or literally under torture, which they were? Of the 12, and, and more than just the 12 would have to be in on it, of the 12, 11 of them died violent deaths for this claim that Jesus rose. They were crucified, they were roasted, they were fed to lions, they were beheaded, they were disemboweled before they were executed, and still none of them would back, out, back off of it. And it's true that people will die for something that they sincerely think is true, but how many people are really willing to die for something that they know is a lie? 
Pascal said this best, I think, in, in, in the most succinct way. Pascal said, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. Plus, if it was a lie, it was a horrible choice of a lie. You remember, we started this all by saying that nobody in the ancient world thought that resurrection was particularly possible. And then they go and they name as the first witnesses of the resurrection women. And this is significant because women in this society are considered so unreliable that they don't even have standing in court as witnesses. You cannot call a woman as a witness in court. Plus, it's, again, this is an easy lie to disprove. If this is a conspiracy, all the Jews have to do, or the Romans, who have way more resources, all they have to do is find the body, produce Jesus' body. So what, we're, what then this is positing is that the disciples had to both lie and steal a body being guarded by the Romans. And if you pay attention to the details of when they find the empty tomb, not just steal it, but stop in the tomb and unwind all that linen and those 70 pounds of spices for no known reason to give it credibility. And this is the conspiracy theory. But the problem just goes on because it's not just the followers who are transformed by something. A whole lot of the skeptics end up believers that Jesus rose from the dead. And the best example of this is James, Jesus' brother. James literally thinks that Jesus is crazy during Jesus' life. He's not a disciple. He does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah until he sees the resurrected Jesus. And then he's totally changed, so much so that he becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. And according to, again, Josephus, is killed for it, is martyred for it. And the same goes for thousands of the Jews in Jerusalem within just a few weeks of the, of the resurrection. Peter gives this speech in, uh, on Pentecost 50 days later, and his whole point of the speech is, look, David's tomb is right here, and it's got bones in it. Jesus' tomb is right here, and there are no bones in it. And 3,000 people convert. And that includes a bunch of the priests and a bunch of the Pharisees, and in that crowd of the Pharisees, that includes Paul. And Occam's Razor says that people skeptical of Jesus' claims when he was alive don't suddenly start believing because his disciples made up an unbelievable story. They believe because they saw. Remember Paul, I'll read it again. Then he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Which leaves us only two more possibilities. If it can't be that he fainted, and it can't be hallucinations, and it's super unlikely that it's a conspiracy, then that leaves us that fourth one, which is actually, as far as I can figure, the most popular one, if you go looking on the internet and you ask, you know, why is it, what happened, how, how do we get this story of Jesus' resurrection, um, people will say that basically that wasn't part of the original story. And people over the generations have layered on like myths and legends about Jesus who was just this humble rabbi and that Christianity added this stuff hundreds of years later. The nice thing is this is actually super easy to disprove. 
We have abundant documentary evidence that the claim of Jesus, that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead was the central claim of the Christians from the very earliest days. The quote that I keep reading you, right, that I've read twice from 1 Corinthians 15, let's talk about that. Even secular scholars, you can look it up on Wikipedia, even secular scholars who think that Paul didn't write all the letters that we claim he did write believe that 1 Corinthians is a legitimate Pauline letter. It was written by Paul. And this section of 1 Corinthians in 15 is definitely written by Paul, and he wrote it super early. The information that Paul gives in this passage is written within 20 years of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul is saying to his audience, listen, it's the Pax Romana. Traveling around the Mediterranean is actually relatively easy. Go ask these 500 people what they saw. And it's not just Paul. Every significant first and second generation Christian writing talks about this. Uh, William Lane Craig summarizes the evidence, or rather um, how it's just everywhere, like this. He says, look, the letters of Barnabas and Clement, which is two of the earliest sets of letters that we have by Christians that are not in the Bible, the letters of Barnabas and Clement refer to Jesus' miracles and his resurrection. Polycarp, who theoretically was John's disciple, mentions the resurrection of Jesus. Irenaeus relates that he heard Polycarp talk about Jesus' miracles. Ignatius speaks of the resurrection. Paderatus reports that peoples were still living who had been healed by Jesus. Justin Martyr mentions the miracles of Christ. No remnant of a non-miraculous story exists. That the original story should be lost and replaced by another goes beyond any known example of corruption of even oral tradition, not to speak of the experience of written transmission of history. These facts show that the story in the Gospels was, in substance, the same story that Christians had at the beginning. This means that the resurrection of Jesus was always part of the story. Always. So then how do you explain the empty tomb? How do you explain the transformation of Jesus' 12 from scared and demoralized to brave men willing to be martyred? How do you explain the sudden conversion of the hardened skeptics? How do you explain the sudden mass conversion of literally thousands of Jews overnight to Christianity? How do you explain Paul's appeal to the, to the 500 witnesses in the lifetime of those witnesses? You can't. Unless there really were multiple inexplicable, plausible, and repeated encounters with the resurrected Jesus. That is, unless the resurrection is just true, is a fact. Unless what actually happened is the man Jesus died, was buried, and then three days later burst from the tomb, having actually defeated the grave, and then went around explaining it to his followers. And that puts us in an interesting place. Because if Jesus was raised from the dead, it means something. I mean, the first and most obvious thing is that it means that the death of Jesus to atone for sinners was a pleasing sacrifice to God. 
and really did deal with and propitiate and cover over and take away our sin. That's what he said it was about. And we know then the resurrection shows us that we know for certain that God the Father, that that pleased him because he then raised Jesus from the dead. Second thing that it means, that the resurrection means, is that the resurrection, that resurrection from the dead, where we started this whole sermon, resurrection from the dead, that our dead ones are not gone forever and ever, is not a tragic, impossible dream. All of the hopes and wishes and desires that we have, that our dead ones won't stay dead, that we'll get them back in some way, is not just possible. It's happened. And the Christian message has always been that Jesus is just the first of those who have been raised from the dead. Jesus himself promises that he will return and he will raise the dead. And that means you and that means anyone that you've lost that you wish you hadn't lost and that you love. And the third thing the resurrection means is that everything changes. It's not just our future that changes, it's our right now. And um, the, the Catholic theologian Peter Kraft put it best, so I'm just going to kind of steal what he said. He said that the resurrection means certain things about the character of reality. That the resurrection of Jesus is the concrete, factual, empirical proof that life has hope and purpose. That we are not living in some nihilist, meaningless horror. The resurrection of Jesus means that the love of God is stronger than death. That there is something stronger than death. The resurrection means that right now, we can know that goodness and power are ultimately allies, not enemies. This is huge because anytime we experience goodness and power, it seems like they're always on opposite sides. But that's not true. Goodness and power... Goodness is him dying for our sins. Power is him rising from the dead. And the resurrection finally means that we are not cosmic orphans, doomed to a meaningless existence. That's not where we are. Easter is the day that we all sit up and take notice and rub our eyes and wonder at the fact are you ready? That Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Amen. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Please stand. We have uh, already said the creeds, so we'll continue to the offering and offertory on page 10.
feast of victory for our God. Hallelujah. Worthy is Christ, the Lamb who was slain, whose blood set us free to be people of God. Power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and blessing and glory are His. This is the feast of victory for our God. Hallelujah! Sing with all the people of God and join in the hymn of all creation Blessing and honor and glory and might be to God and the Lamb forever. Amen. This is the feast of victory for our God, for the Lamb who was slain has begun his reign. Alleluia. Hallelujah. We thank you, Father, for giving your Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let your Holy Spirit come into our hearts and strengthen our faith. Sanctify by your Spirit this bread and wine, that through Jesus' words they may be for us his body and blood, the food and drink of eternal life. Amen.